Welcome to the Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones. Tonight on the show, the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office published the first ever findings of its Conviction Integrity Unit. We'll speak with DA Sim Gill about that, as well as the Elevating Trust and Legitimacy for Prosecutors Project for which the office has been chosen. Constitutional Law and Scholar Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of UC Berkeley School of Law, He'll be talking about the research and court cases behind his new book, Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. It is the last week of Songs of Summer, inspired by the Utah Arts Festival over the weekend, in particular, the Saturday night performance of a certain band. I've asked KRCL's own Ma Black to join me for a pick to start the show. Hey, Ma, how you doing? Hi, Laura. I'm doing great and happy to be here again with you. You are the host of uh, Night Estereo, Saturday nights here on KRCL, Music Without Borders, and you were asked to introduce Las Cafeteras, a band you introduced me to, and I think we're the only radio station that actually plays them here in Utah. You are correct. Uh, Radioactive and Night Estereo and KRCL is the home for Music Without Borders, and of course, Las Cafeteras is one of our favorite music ensembles, super talented and yeah, that was a blast. You know, if you missed the show at the Arts Festival on Saturday, there is some good news though, right, Ma? That is right. Las Cafeteras will be coming back to North Ogden for Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos in November. Uh, further details are going to be added here at KRCL. And of course, we invited them, right, Laura, to oh, yeah. come and record for us and give us an interview um, at our, our new studios, our temporary studios in November. So stay tuned for that for sure. Cross our fingers. We're still working on these studios, which is keeping our community co-hosts uh, off for the summer break. But uh, Ma, I was hoping that you had a favorite song from Las Cafeteras, and I don't know how to choose because the whole show, I mean, I thought, oh, I'll stay for a couple of songs. It's been a long day. Did that march on for voting rights rally. But then... I'm not saying they're like Prince, but the only other time this has happened where I've thought I really need to get home, I can't stay that long, was a Prince show. Downbeat, you're there for the rest of it. That was Las Cafeteras on Saturday night at the Arts Festival for me. How about you? Yes, well, I, I was so happy that you stayed for the entire concert. And yeah, I've been looking forward to seeing them and chatting a little bit with them about the impact of their music over the last years. And I had a chance to talk to Hector, which is the lead, uh, you know, the, the person that kind of glues the cafeteria together. Even the, they have some different musicians come in and, you know, guest musicians. Hector knows that their music was so crucial for us immigrants and Chicanos and Latinos in Salt Lake City because their songs speak about dreamers about immigrant rights about the working the field workers and most recently their latest song that was released in june la sirena that means the mermaid speaks of our lgbtq and transgender community in such an inclusive and loving way and of course that became my favorite song of this summer and it talks about the complexity of love between people that are different from different backgrounds, but they did it in such an exquisite way, putting, for example, La Sirena, a mermaid. Well, Ma, you are a DJ. Why don't you introduce this song then? 
Thank you so much, Laura. This is La Sirena released in June by Las Cafeteras, only here, 90.9 FM KRCL. Hashtag Music Without Borders, Música Sin Fronteras. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break on KRCL, Shorter Conversations and More Music. I'm Laura Jones. The Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office recently published the first-ever findings of its Conviction Integrity Unit. I spoke with DA Sim Gill about it recently. We also got into the new pilot project for which the office has been chosen, the Elevating Trust and Legitimacy for Prosecutors Project. Here's our conversation. Lay the groundwork for us again. When did you form the Conviction Integrity Unit and remind us what was behind that push? So, uh, so you know, we formed this in 2018. Uh, and, uh, and, and the premise was very simple, uh, which is that I believe that as a public prosecutor, as a public institution that is engaged in the acts of prosecution, that uh, that if we have the power to charge, uh, prosecute, and convict individuals, uh, then we have an inherent responsibility, an ethical, moral, and legal responsibility to correct those mistakes when we discover them, and because that is tied to our uh, fundamental notions of uh, due process and legitimacy, because the methods and the means by which we try to justify uh, uh, our institutional integrity if we uh, commit those errors or overlook them uh, and don't have a mechanism by which to address that, then, uh, then we'll never correct that, right? So it goes to the idea of fundamental fairness and justice ultimately. So to, that was really the, the part of it. And also because historically we're such a large institution that uh, separate from intentional wrongdoing, there are certainly procedural and human errors that contribute to that as well, and not have a mechanism uh, that can be self-reflective and self-corrective seemed really uh, asinine to me. It didn't seem logical to me, right? So, so we formed it in 2018, but also what was fascinating for us was that in other places, we saw that where these units were being formed, uh, that there was a pushback to say, no, we don't want to do that because we have rigid rules. So the other thing that we did, which is kind of unique that most people may not realize, uh, I've always believed that I have that inherent power as a public prosecutor. But we also saw in other jurisdictions that the attorney generals and other institutional players we're pushing back on, uh, on that uh, effort to correct those mistakes. So we went back to the legislature and create uh, and uh, uh, helped write and draft uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Utah uh, Conviction Integrity Units Act to codify that, which I already believed was there. And ironically, our codification now is serving as the blueprint for many other states to say, wow, we should have done that because no, no, you're right, because we need to make sure that safety net is in place. So Utah in a really strange way right now is model legislation for other states to look at uh, on creating conviction integrity units to make sure that we have the uh, uh, legal authorization without uh, 
uh, interference to be able to do this. You know, later in the show, I'm going to share a conversation I had with Erwin Chemerinsky on his new book about the the power of the Supreme Court and how it subverted um, uh, police reform. Uh, in his his view, he's down at uh, Berkeley. He's a professor well known for his writings along those lines. You may be familiar with him, but he and I we spoke about this pro- not only prosecutorial discretion but immunity. And what it sounds like, um, having talked to him and and over the the years with you, that you're asking offices with so much power in our community to have a conscience to be reflective. Yes, um, that they're not infallible. Yes. And this is a perhaps a way to inject some accountability within the confines of the system. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, when I started thinking about this, you know, the backstory to this is uh, I knew that Justice Durham was going to be stepping down as the chief justice from the uh, Utah Supreme Court. So I reached out to her uh, uh, for a meeting and, uh, and, I, and I reached out to her and I said, listen, I am uh, thinking about creating this conviction integrity unit. And I know you're thinking about retirement, but can I maybe uh, ask you to entice you to be a part of this process? And she and I had a really uh, good conversation. And one of the things that I committed to her because she also wanted to do Uh, a substantive change. So what makes our conviction integrity unit really kind of unique and different, which other units had not done, is that one, once I created the advisory panel, I made, and I made a very conscious commitment to her to say that when the advisory panel goes through this investigative process and comes up with its recommendations, I will publish those unedited, uncensored on the website as the findings that you have, because that transparency was important. But more importantly, I can't delegate my authority, my institutional authority uh, onto the the panel, but then I would also in a public way have to either agree or articulate my reasons for disagreeing with them as a part of a transparent conversation, right? And that was a, which may seem very small, but it is tectonic in the sense of that self-critical reflective uh, thing that you're talking about, laying bare that process and accountability to our community of citizens, right? Yeah. So I think there are mechanisms that are available for us by which to sort of self-regulate, but we say that, but we don't, don't create the structure that we can rely upon. And then, so we don't have that integrity. And by the same analysis, the conviction integrity unit's findings and what we're going to maybe talk a little bit further down is really about how do you restore that trust and that integrity? Because we can make mistakes. And I said the other day, if we're incapable of acknowledging the mistakes that we've made and look and being reflective upon them and then follow the and acknowledge that we didn't follow our own best intentions and rules, then we can't have integrity in that process, right? Right. And, and I had a similar conversation with the Fraternal Order of Police a while, early on, where I said to them, let's do a thought experiment that let's say that we have a thousand police shootings, right? Your position is that officers, you want to defend the officers regardless. And I'm saying even statistically, you have to give me room for uh, human error. And, and, and so what is the methodology by which we'll be able to, I'm not even putting into bad intention here. How can we decipher 
through a process and recognize that human error and your unwillingness to even acknowledge human error uh, uh, cuts against our idea of the transparency we want to have against the uh, uh, you know with the, with the community uh, for the community you recently held a press conference and talked about two cases in particular that the Conviction Integrity Unit had reviewed. What were these cases? What were the findings of the panel? And what was your decision? So in essence, uh, what was unique about this, it focused on the idea uh, of, uh, of legitimacy, right? When we fail to follow the due process rights afforded to those who are accused, uh, uh, then these rights and processes by which we adjudicate guilt is the foundation of our criminal justice system. And if we're not willing to follow them, then, then we can't have outcomes uh, that, that, that we can rely upon. And so in this case, it focused on uh, not the ultimate merits of the case, whether these individuals engaged in a wrongful behavior, but rather these two were juveniles who ended up in the adult system and there were procedural errors, systemic errors, which uh, conferred jurisdiction and then adjudicated their guilt. And, and since you can't confer jurisdiction from juvenile court to the adult court, then those outcomes uh, are void. They, they, they don't have any uh, 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 power. And so we recognized those errors that were made. In the first case, uh, uh, it was, when we were doing DEA sweeps almost uh, 10 years ago, these are two cases that go back 12 and 10 years in the past, uh, we were rounding up people. And I remember as a line prosecutor, we would take them down at arraignment. And even one of the judges on the Judge Atherton, who's on the uh, Conviction Integrity Unit panel, recalls how these individuals we brought in as a group, they would sort of have this group pleading of, uh, of guilt. Uh, there was 30 days in deport because they were uh, nationals from another country here illegally, and then they would be deported back. And I remember as a line prosecutor raising that issue with at least uh, several judges, and they were like, look, uh, uh, you know, I guess we'll deal with it on appeal, right? And, and, and cutting that corner, that, that expediency by which we were solving a problem, uh, an end that we wanted, we violated the means by which we desired those ends and thereby violated the integrity of our own issue. So we had a young man who uh, allegedly sold uh, uh, drugs. He was charged, but he was a juvenile. He was adjudicated as an adult and, uh, and he was sent out of the country. The other case was similarly a young man uh, who was a minor who engaged in a sexual contact with another minor uh, and, uh, and there were some other issues here. The, uh, it was alleged that the detective who did the, uh, uh, the interview told him that since he's a minor, he won't be charged as an adult, uh, uh, you know, and then subsequently this office uh, filed the case. And even in the filings, if you paid attention and actually just analyzed it, you would know that this person shouldn't be in the adult system uh, because our system of our juvenile court is that if, you're, if, if you commit the crime while you're a juvenile, but you are arrested after you are over the age of 18, but under the age of 21, that jurisdiction still is in juvenile court. It cannot be conferred to the adult court. The adult court actually even raised the issue and the prosecution and the defense uh, uh, attorney uh, either ignored or chase the end that they wanted and compromise the integrity of the process. And thereby the net result was a conviction that cannot stand. 
So what we said is that we violated our own process and these two individuals should not have been convicted in the adult system. And therefore we filed a motion to vacate those two convictions. So what does that mean practically for these two individuals, one who may no longer be in the country because he was deported as part of the result of that earlier case, conviction? Right. So what it means is that these two convictions should be removed from their uh, record. They did. They are not valid. Uh, and anything that may trigger subsequent uh, enhancements based on those convictions would then also cascade without those consequences. Right. The Conviction Integrity Unit did not uh, go into what the consequences, because these two individuals were brought to us by the Federal Public Defender's Office on another illegal re-entry violation for a federal prosecution. And so uh, our focus was not what the collateral result of it might be, but rather to correct the mistake that we have recognized. And that's really why I created that uh, conviction integrity unit was. You know, one of the questions that I was asked that, well, this may mean that there may be other things and does not give you concern. Uh, and my answer was, well, no, what gives me concern is that there's people who may ultimately be convicted and who shouldn't be convicted. And we have to have a mechanism by which to be able to correct those wrongs. And, and by doing so, we're not only trying to address the past wrong, but simultaneously educating uh, uh, our current prosecutors and stakeholders to say that we have to be faithful to that due process and we should not out of expediency cut corners and hope that we'll deal with it later, rather that responsibility is now in the delivery of that justice. When we look at mass incarceration in our country, do you feel that this work is even more important, that expediency um, has come before due process way too many times across the country, let alone in our own community? Yeah, I, I think so, because I, I, and I, I really believe this, right? The means that by which we get our convictions are as important, if not more important than the desired ends that we may want to pursue, right? The means give us the legitimacy of those outcomes. And, and if we're willing to compromise for whatever rationale, the means, then we are violating the constitutional foundational principles by which we get to say that we are delivering justice, right? And so it's, it can't be outcome driven. Uh, that is what separates us, at least to me, from other systems that are unfair and unjust is because they want to get to the consensus of public policy to the outcome while compromising and, uh, and uh, uh, taking away the constitutional rights of individuals. We lose the dignity of our principles and the dignity of the person who is at the receiving end of this. So you're right. Uh, I think that, the, that we cannot continue to say that you can trust the system if we're not willing to at least acknowledge that we have made mistakes. And here's a mechanism by which we can then own and correct those mistakes, because that's the only way we will do systemic change and the culture change in the individual participants in this process. Earlier this month, your office also announced it has been selected among applicants nationwide for the Elevating Trust and Legitimacy for Prosecutors project. What's this pilot project going to mean in our community? Well, first of all, it's really exciting in the sense that this is by the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation and the Yale Law, suit, uh, the Yale Law School, excuse me, and the American Prosecution U uh, uh, Association. And what we did, we competed 
And they chose us because they said, you know what, you have your office is prime. You are already doing these reform things. And it is important for us to come into this uh, into this space. And this experience, which will be a 15 month deep dive, and I'm going to turn over uh, 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 filings, chargings, disposition from going back three years in this office uh, to look at without shame or blame in a critical self reflection of how we can actually progress forward for the reform that we want to make. And ultimately, this will serve as a blueprint for law enforcement and other uh, prosecution offices uh, in general, public institutions, which resist the change because the, 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 the hesitation is, geez, if I look at it and I find something uncomfortable, that's gonna make me look bad. I don't, I'd much rather not look at that. And my, but my paradigm shift here is to say, listen, by not looking at it, you can do it without shame or blame with an eye towards the progress towards solutions. And that is really what we need to do because the worst thing you can do is not look at yourself. So we're really excited about this uh, because this was not only gonna serve as a blueprint for all other offices, but it, it is going to help us be more critically self-reflective to say, okay, how do we build that trust with the community? How do we change our process? How do we actually embolden our prosecutors into the new culture of language of justice? Uh, you know, I just had a conversation this morning with eight prosecutors, uh, and we were talking about a really violent uh, sort of a scenario. And but we said, okay, do we want to just have a knee-jerk reaction to send this person to prison, or given his history, do we have an obligation to learn more where uh, where we may want to? hold prison, but give this person the opportunity to transition so he does not enter into, uh, into the escalator of, uh, of recidivism. And that was a really important conversation to have. We talk about it intellectually, we discuss it as policy objectives, but what does it really mean to actually implement it? And that's really what this is going to be about. Well, with both of these uh, items that we're talking about, the Conviction Integrity Unit and the Elevating Trust and Legitimacy for Prosecutors Project, you get praise and criticism. Yeah, absolutely. So, which is fascinating, right? Because uh, it, when you step back from it, people want this change, but they don't want to engage in the hard work. And then if you engage in the hard work, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, so this is, means that you, what you're doing is wrong. And that's why other people in similar spaces don't want to do this work, right? So I have people on one side saying, we don't care uh, about that process. They did something wrong and they need to be punished and get to the end, right? Uh, simultaneously, I have people on the left who are saying, well, no, this isn't moving fast enough. And that means that you've got a, a weakened process and so we sometimes uh, cut our own nose to spite our own face, right? And my point here is reform is possible, but it has to be sustainable. It can't be episodic. And as such, we need to make sure that when we do have allies who want to engage in this space, it may not be everything we want, but we need to be moving in the right direction in a systemic way. And we need to encourage that. So one of the reasons, right, uh, look, uh, when I was first appointed as the Salt Lake City prosecutor, this is going back almost 20 years ago, in a, uh, I was part of the Commission on Racial and Ethnic Fairness, which was a state commission led by Judge uh, Tyrone Medley. 
I opened up my office to 21,000 files to the University of Utah to look at, uh, at the issue of racism and uh, disparate outcomes. And that was unheard of. And we did it because we wanted to say that institutional leadership can lean into the space in a, with a positive outcome. So it's really fascinating, but I think this is the kind of work that needs to be done if we want to have the political and social dialogue of reform and change, it has to be translatable into specific actions. But it's not just choosing and wanting to do that specific action, but you want to change the culture. You want to change the DNA of the institution. And you want to operationalize sustainable processes that can transcend the accident of one particular leadership in that organization. And that's hard and tedious work that doesn't translate well to a soundbite or a, or a quippy headline either, right? Yeah, but I think you can't say it. You know, I think I think I, I would say it this way: if you want change, it's hard work, and you have to be ready for it, and you have to be patient uh, to be engaged in it. It doesn't mean that you have to compromise on your principle and the direction that we want to end up at, but we have to pragmatically understand. We're trying to bring together people who may not agree with what we want. And we have to recognize that there is violence in our community. And how do we ensure public safety? How do we ensure the dignity of all who are part of that process from victims to offenders to the expectations of community? How do we build a consensus for that change to occur without making other people feel that they are not being heard and not being seen? So this is hard work. But it is doable. It is doable. It is worth the fight and the effort. But it comes at a price that is exacted. And we have to be willing to engage in that hard work and not be frustrated by the expediency, either on the left or the right, uh, as uh, or, or superimposing itself on the work itself. Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the findings of the Conviction Integrity Unit and more. Coming up, presumed guilty, how the Supreme Court empowered the police and subverted civil rights. Have you been impacted by COVID and need rental assistance? Community health workers with Pacific Island Knowledge 2 Action Resources can help. Visit PIK2AR.org for details. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break, shorter interviews and more music weeknights at 6 here on KRCL. I'm your host, Laura Jones. UC Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky delivers a sharp and timely critique of the Supreme Court for, quote, favoring the interests of law enforcement over the rights of individuals. In his latest book, Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. I had a chance to speak with him recently. He outlined the court cases that back up his assertions, as well as ways to get reforms passed. Here's our conversation. The thesis of the book is over the course of American history, the Supreme Court hasn't controlled the police or enforced the parts of the Constitution that are about living the police. Instead, what the Supreme Court very much has done is empowered the police, and this has led to racialized policing throughout the country. We hear a lot in our current politics about you know, don't legislate from the bench. And then you also hear in the news about court packing of conservative justices. Is this a natural outcome as a result? I think the phrase legislating from the bench is just a matter of perspective. When we don't like what the Supreme Court has done, we say that's legislating from the bench. So we find situations 
where liberals would say, when the Supreme Court decided Citizens United and held that corporations spend unlimited amounts of money in election campaigns, that's legislating from the bench. It declared unconstitutional federal law. Conservatives would say that Roe versus Wade was legislating from the bench and finding a right to abortion and striking down state laws restricting access to abortion. I think it's like the phrase judicial activism. We use it as the label for the decisions we don't like. All right, let's get into some of the decisions that uh, you and your research shows have uh, empowered the police or emboldened the police. Where And qualified immunity is the one that I think as a layperson, I struggle to understand. I struggle to understand why we can't limit it or where it even comes from. It's interesting. Qualified immunity is very much a technical concept. And I've been interested, maybe even amused to see how it's become part of the public vocabulary. Whenever a government official is sued for money damages for a constitutional violation, there's always an immunity defense. These are entirely created by the Supreme Court. They're not found in any law. In fact, if anything would be legislating from the bench, it would seem to be the immunity defenses. Some government officials have absolute immunity. They can't be sued no matter how egregious and awful their conduct. A prosecutor who prosecutes an innocent person and puts that person in prison or to death can't be sued for money damages. Prosecutors have absolute immunity for prosecutorial conduct. Judges have absolute immunity for their judicial conduct. Legislators have absolute immunity for what they do as legislators. But those who don't have absolute immunity, and that's most government officials, have qualified immunity. It means they can be held liable only if they violate clearly established law that every reasonable office know. It has to be a right established beyond dispute. And over the last couple of decades, the Supreme Court has made it ever harder to overcome qualified immunity and to find government officers liable even when they violate people's rights. So what is your suggestion? I've got a doctor in the family. He's had to carry malpractice insurance and as one who delivered babies up until 18 years after the last child he delivered. Um, So would that be a solution for qualified immunity? Well, in fact, government officials do have insurance. It's called indemnification. And every level of government will indemnify government officers, at least for certain kinds of constitutional violations. So I think that the real solution needs to come from Congress, since qualified immunity is not a part of the Constitution, it's created by the Supreme Court in interpreting a federal law that doesn't mention it, Congress can change qualified immunity. I think, for example, there should be no qualified immunity for intentional violation of rights, at the very least for malicious violation of rights. And I think that would help, especially in controlling the police. Well, let's talk about other um points of contention when it comes to police and reform. We've talked about qualified immunity. Um, What about precedent? I think it's used and it's abused to to do what? I don't know. It depends, again, on your perspective. Like you were saying earlier about if you're conservative or if you're progressive, you view things differently. So precedent can be a strategy. There's no doubt that precedent matters in the law. It provides stability and predictability to the law. On the other hand, there's no doubt there are times that precedent has to be overruled. We all would agree that Brown versus Board of Education had to overrule 
Plessy versus Ferguson. There's long books and articles written about precedent. They always come to the same conclusion. Precedent should be followed except when it should be overruled. And there'll be an issue before the Supreme Court in the coming term as to whether to overrule Roe versus Wade. In the end, I don't think that precedent is going to matter much. The justices are going to have to decide, do they want to affirm or overrule that landmark decision? You also say that the Warren Court was an aberration. The reality is that the Supreme Court has been conservative through most of American history. It was conservative through the 19th century. It was very conservative in the early part of the 20th century till 1937. There's really just been about eight years from 1961 to 1969 in which we had a liberal majority on the Supreme Court. And that was what we regard as the Warren Court years. But then Richard Nixon quickly got to pick four justices between 1969 and 1971, and that ended the Warren Court. Here's a statistic that I think is very revealing. Between 1960 and 2020, we had 32 years with a Republican president and 28 years with a Democratic president. In 2024, we'll have had 32 years with a Republican and 32 years with a Democrat, which I find quite stunning. But between the years I was talking about, 1960 and 2020, Republican presidents picked 15 Supreme Court justices and Democratic presidents picked only eight Supreme Court justices. That helps explain why we have a very conservative Supreme Court now and have for the last half century. Oh, wow. So what is the solution for you know the lay public looking at this going, okay, it does matter perhaps who's president when it comes solely to the courts? Well, when it comes to the Supreme Court, the bottom line is elections matter enormously. The longest lasting legacy of Donald Trump will be the three people he put on the Supreme Court. Amy Coney Barrett was 48 years old when she was confirmed on October 26th. If she remains on the Supreme Court until she is 87, the age was Justice Ginsburg died, Barrett will be a Supreme Court justice into the year 2059. Okay, that that earns a pregnant pause there, Professor. <laughs> so do you believe that perhaps one of the solutions would be term limits for justices? I have been arguing for years for 18-year non-renewable terms for Supreme Court justices. Life expectancy, thankfully, is a lot longer now than it was in 1787. In 1787, the average life expectancy was 36 years old. Clarence Thomas was 43 when he was nominated to the Supreme Court and confirmed in 1991. If he remains until he's 90, and that was the age was just as John Paul Stevens retired, Thomas will be a justice for 47 years. I don't want this to sound ideological. Justice Kagan was 50 when she was confirmed for the court. If she stays till she's 90, that's 40 years. That's too much power in one person's hands for too long a period of time. And it's interesting, even conservatives like Rick Perry have endorsed this idea of 18-year non-renewable terms for Supreme Court justices. So there is one of the elements of reform, perhaps, that could ultimately trickle down to the police. But your your most interesting chapter to me, frankly, is the path to meaningful police reform. And we don't have time to go into a lot, but I'd like to get into the conversation about defund the police and abolish the police versus meaningful reform. I think some of the, these, these um, charged slogans 
can obscure what could be meaningful reform. You're absolutely right. We can't abolish the police. Society needs to have law enforcement. Defund the police is more ambiguous. If it means abolish the police, that's nonsensical. If it means sometimes could we transfer some functions from the police to other social service agencies like mental health, I think that could be a good idea. But I think there are things that can be done. Congress, state legislatures, city councils, police commissions can impose reforms on policing. To give one example, some cities have banned police from using the chokehold. It's what killed Eric Garner. It's what killed George Floyd. Also, state courts under state constitutions can protect more rights than exist under the US Constitution. Many states have done that. And there is authority in the federal government to be able to bring action against police departments when there's a pattern and practice of civil rights violations. When you see what's going on in Portland and how it ends up being a talking point between conservative and progressive politicians, what do you say to the folks who are in the streets and perhaps engaging in political violence? Violence is never justified, not for liberal, not for conservative causes. There has to be change to the democratic process. And I support people taking to the streets to march peacefully for police reform or for any other cause. One of the lessons that we learn from places like Portland is we can't eliminate the police. We need public safety, but we also should make sure that it's done in a way that's not race-based, in a way that respects and protects all of our rights. If I'm watching popular media, I'm pretty cynical about that possibility, Professor. What do you say to to uh, provide some hope? It's it's definitely not a sprinter's competition here. I do have hope. I'm asked this question a lot. And what I always say, especially to my students, is there's been such a tremendous advance in equality and freedom over the course of American history. We have a huge way to go with regard to racial justice, but it's sure a lot better than when I was born in 1953 when Southern states had laws, Jim Crow laws, segregating the races. With regard to sex, it's certainly a long way to go for gender equality, but it's gotten better over my lifetime. When I think of sexual orientation, it was just six years ago that the Supreme Court first said that gays and lesbians had the right to marry. When we think of freedom, there's been tremendous expansion of so many freedoms over the course of American history. So I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got it right when he said, The arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. And so I believe there can be, I think there will be more controls put on the police. We have to, I said to my students at a point where they were very discouraged, that there's just two choices. Either we give up or we fight harder, which means there's really only one choice. We fight harder and better than we ever have before. And every generation must learn that lesson for themselves. Yes. Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. His new book is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. I'll put a link in our show notes. I'm Laura Jones, and this has been the Radioactive Summer Break. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm, Michelle's Night Train at 10.30, and start your brand new day at 6 a.m. weekdays with John Florence. You can find the last two weeks of any show on demand through our website, krcl.org. Going to leave you tonight with some classic Neil Young off Rust Never Sleeps, 
My My Hey Hey on KRCL 90.9.